ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. One of the world's biggest names in the cotton industry has made a takeover bid for Australia's largest cotton gin operator. Whilst they're not an Australian-born and company, they're, they've been operating here for 110 years. So the combined the two, is a, with NAMOR, that's 172 years of commitment to Australian agriculture. And I, I see only positives with joining the two. I'll tell you more about this takeover bid soon and what it might mean for a cotton gin in the north. Also today, should there be a moratorium on new mines in the Territory until the old legacy mines are cleaned up? I'll put this question to the Minerals Council in just a moment. And the famous Cahills Crossing, it is closed as we go to air this afternoon. I'll tell you what's going on before 1.30. This is all part of today's Country Hour. Hope you can stick around. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day if you are tuning in via the podcast. We start today's program with some big property news in northern Australia. A large portfolio of cattle stations in the Kimberley region of WA, spanning 2.9 million hectares, is on track to move from Chinese to Canadian ownership. The Yugawalla Pastoral Company and Argyle Cattle Company have signed an agreement to sell this large portfolio of stations to the Alberta Investment Management Corporation and its investment partner that's called New Agriculture. Now, the agreement is subject to regulatory approvals and assessment by the Foreign Investment Review Board. As part of the agreement, the new owners will retain Hayden and Jane Sale as managers of this vast portfolio. Hayden has just spoken to the Country Hours' Alice Marshall about the deal. Let's have a listen. We are very happy with the the eventual buyer. Um, We think they're a really good fit for the company. Um, They're already established in agriculture in Australia. Uh, uh, They're bringing in substantial funds uh, that will help us move forward to further develop the business in the irrigation area and the, and the, uh, the infrastructure on the stations. Uh, and all of the part of the deal was for them to actually buy it was all the staff and the management was to remain in place uh, because they're not, they're, a, um, they're not a hands-on manager as such. They would like us and all the people that work with us to stay and keep managing it. So in the end, I thought a very good result. So yourself and your wife, Jane, are still managing the whole portfolio. Can you tell me what's going to change now that you've got a, a new owner? Uh, well, new owner brings... Um, uh, a bit of fresh vision, uh, a bit of fresh enthusiasm, and uh, and importantly with these things, fresh capital. So, um, you know, we've had a very good run with the old owners. They sort of had their time. They were looking to exit. But when people were looking to exit, they generally sort of pull up on all those things. Uh, and and uh, we've had a period of a year or two in sort of limbo, wondering whether we were selling or not selling. Uh, and to have a new direction is fantastic. So these guys are coming in. Uh, we're very much focused on the long term. Um you know, they're shooting this as a 20-plus year investment. Uh, their structure of how they work allows them to do that. Uh, and then they have the funding available to to drive the forward business where, that, where it needs that capital development. So, uh, and, and importantly, all the people that work in it 
uh, remain in it, and they see that as a pretty critical side of it to keep that experience and, and the overall management of that business and the people that will work together to achieve that uh, together. It's part of the deal. So yeah, we we um, yeah we're extremely happy with the, with the people coming in and and the result for everyone involved. And speaking to Danny Thomas, as senior director of Lord, when this sale was advertised, a significant selling point was the the infrastructure around water across all of the stations and, and leases. Can you tell me, especially looking at Shamrock Station, we know you've got a number of centre pivots set up there. Is there plans to continue expanding that? Yeah, so Shamrock is um, uh, Shamrock is basically partially developed. There's a there's a approvals for. Uh, a water license and uh, and development of 12 40 to 45 hectare center pivots so sort of 480 to 500 hectare development under irrigation um, using water from the broom sandstone aquifer so there was a huge very long very intensive licensing process that went around that so it took us roughly about five years to get that sorted with hydro geological reports and environmental impact reports and all those things uh, that needed to be done and we got there and, and now that plays a very big part in the strategy of the business heads so that allows us to grow fodder to feed in a feed yard to uh to further value add cattle so we're not quite as reliant on uh the one market uh one or two markets that we currently have we can also produce cattle for the domestic slaughter market uh and then pivot to other markets if we need to so that's been a big key focus for us and the new the new uh the new buyers coming in have, have really saw that as a as a as a, a really big upside for the business so they're they're very much behind getting that development done uh, so hopefully next year we'll kick off and get that done are you looking to expand any irrigated fodder crops on any of the other leases no the, the, the irrigation is based at shamrock because that's where the licensing is and, and that's where the, the the irrigatable quantities of water are under the ground there the other leases uh, are basically access to stock water but it's also one of their big advantages all across the leases we've got good water uh we've spent many years right back to when uh, jane and i first came here in, in the 2007 developing that water um to provide more stock water points to spread cattle across country and effectively run more cattle and and also um uh reduce the impact on the on your country by spreading those cattle across it on the range. So, yeah, water plays a key part. Water for the stock and then water for, uh, in the future, irrigation for sure. It's one of the great benefits of the Kimberley. And I'm assume you're, assuming that you're standing at home at the moment. How's everything looking when you're looking out your window? What's the season been like for you? Oh, it's been a very, very challenging season. Um, just starting off with floods, which knocked out the bridge. Uh, it didn't overly affect us because we're a bit more upstream, but through our marketing process and our inputs we need into absolute chaos and then, uh, then we had uh, issues with the Indonesian market with um, maybe skin disease so we had we have had some kind of marketing issues this year that we had to deal with and then we've had to top it all off a, uh, a huge fire season so probably one of the most challenging seasons I've seen in the Kimberley um, and in amongst that uh, obviously having a sale process going on so so it's, uh, I'll be pretty happy to get to Christmas this year and and, uh, and knock off because it's been a tough year. But it, 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 the fires have really impacted us. But we are starting to get some storms now around the traps that have that have uh, is helping that. I wouldn't say we're out of the out of the woods entirely, but we've had a little bit of relief. So hopefully that keeps coming. That is Hayden Sale, who is the manager of the Yugawalla Cattle Company and Argyle Cattle Company. And as part of this deal, he and Jane will stay on as the managers. He was speaking to Alice Marshall, 
This portfolio that spans 2.9 million hectares, it includes well-known Kimberley cattle stations like Margaret River, Bolker, uh, Beefwood Park, Mullabulla and Shamrock stations. What did it sell for? I guess is the big question. Uh, it hasn't been disclosed publicly. And as mentioned, it still needs a few approvals. But reports at this stage are that it's sold for around $300 million. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Outbitted, hey, Dan? Just missed out, hey? Another one missed. Condolences to you. Condolences to you and the family. No, no, you're here in the studio because some big news out today from Meat and Livestock Australia its boss, Jason Strong, has suddenly announced his resignation. Yeah, Jason Strong has been Managing Director of MLA for the last five years, and he is set to leave the organisation on December 22nd, with a statement out from MLA today saying, it was a good time to create an opportunity for the next leaders of MLA. Jason Strong said MLA is about to commence the development of, a ne- of its next five-year plan, and he says, we have a great team and it'll be a good time at Christmas to step aside and give other leaders in the business the opportunity to develop and own those plans. As for what's next, it sounds like he wants to stay in the livestock industry. Yeah. And of course, he is the former boss of the Australian Agricultural Company. Here at the Country Hour, we've invited Mr. Strong to come on for a conversation. I understand that he's not available today, but hopefully maybe the next week or so we'll get a chance to speak to him. Speaking of MLA, I was on its website today and checking out the indicator, the price indicator for restocker heifers, Dan. Here's, you've missed out on buying stations in the Kimberley. Here's another missed opportunity, right? At the start of this month, the cost of a heifer compared to what it is right now it's increased by 78% from the start of November. That's how far the National Restocker Heifer Indicator has risen, which is just a sign of the amount of rain that the eastern states are now getting. But for some smart punters out there in the livestock game, if they bought at the back end of October and are selling now, they've made a a few dollars. Yeah, just looking at the Eki chart, it is quite something yeah. to look at. It, the big steep dive all this year, and then it's yes coming the, back just the, as strong. The, and that's the benchmark indicator too. The Eki it's risen by more than fifty percent since the start of November. Big rises in the east. Will we see that starting to flow into the live export trade? We'll have to wait and see. It is twenty to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Up next, we'll be speaking to the head of the Minerals Council here in the Northern Territory. Hello, my name is Chris Zolis. I'm the Managing Director of Verdant Minerals, the owner of the Amaru Phosphate Project on Amaru Station, south of Tennant Creek, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On the program yesterday, we were talking about legacy mines in the Territory. There's about 900 of them. And the cleanup cost for some legacy mines, well, as you would imagine, a lot of, lot of money is needed. Some Indigenous leaders, including the head of the Northern Land Council, think there should be a moratorium on new mines until these old ones are properly cleaned up. Let's start with Red Bank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. Yeah, that was the chief executive of the NLC, Joe Martin-Jard. Let's clean up Red Bank before looking at other mines. Catherine Tillmouth is the executive director, Northern Australia, for the Minerals Council of Australia. 
Uh, Catherine, a moratorium on new mines until the old ones are cleaned up properly. What do you think of that idea? So... Look, the Minerals Council and the mining industry does agree that the situation that you've got with some of the legacy mines is not ideal. It isn't. It um, it doesn't give us a great reputation. We would also like to see those fixed up. But the thought of not letting new projects go ahead until that is done just doesn't work out. What you've got at the moment is a mining industry that contributes so much to the NT economy, so much in the way of training and jobs and infrastructure out in remote areas that the government sometimes cannot provide. And those mines that are in operation or that are going to start have the most stringent regulatory processes in place that requires them to have a bond for 100% of their um, rehabilitation plans in place. And as well, they pay a levy which goes towards the legacy mine unit and provides the funds to fix up the mistakes of the past. And how big is that levy? So it's 1% of what um, the mining companies have to pay in bond to the Northern Territory. And at the moment, I think the entire fund from what Minister Madison said in Parliament the other day, it sits at about $88 million in the bank. So yes, the mining industry wants to see that money go out the door, go and be spent on fixing up these legacy issues. And there's really an opportunity for people on country in these remote areas where these old sites are to get into the business of service and supply or to win some contracts and be partnering with the mining industry to do this rehabilitation work. And these are real jobs out in the remote areas with an industry that's already in existence out there that um, these Indigenous groups can tap into. I've got the stat here that there's around 900 legacy mines in the Northern Territory. Is $88 million in the bank enough? So that um, fund will continue to grow, as I said, as these mines continue to pay this levy towards the Northern Territory government. But not every legacy issue is the same as Red Bank. That is a very significant um, issue that will be complex and expensive um, to remediate. But that it'd, it'd be in the hundreds of millions of dollars alone. I, I it? think there was a, um, a fifty million dollar estimate which was put to um, put out by Minister Madison the other day when she was speaking to the bill. Um, but you've also got, of the 900 um, issues, some of them are as small as a an open um, mine shaft around the Tenner Creek Gold Rush era that needs some fencing um, to just make it safe for the public. So they're not all huge, huge legacy issues. I guess, uh, to the point, though, is there enough money? It, to me, it would seem there is not enough money currently in the kitty. To fix the legacy issues? Yeah. There is plenty of money there at the moment, but the work is what we need to focus on now. What is being done now? What is getting that money out the door and fixing those issues currently? Yeah. But so, 88 million wouldn't be able to fix 900 sites. We don't know that. We haven't had um, an, an appropriate audit, which is going to give us an estimate of how much. But as I said, that kitty will continue to grow and it is continuing to grow. And the mining companies that are in operation now are doing the right thing. They've paid their bond. They're contributing to a legacy issue that they are not responsible for, but they're doing the right thing and contributing to fixing up that issue um, for the benefit of all Territorians. 
Uh, on responsibility, a lot of these old mines happened well before self-government in the Northern Territory. Do you think the federal government should be chipping in? Well, the federal government does contribute to... Um, to the likes of uranium um, rehabilitation projects and things like that, it um, it's not for me to say where the money where the money comes from. Oh, you could say I, it. I could say I could say people ask the federal government <laughs> for money all the time. The mining industry d- does contribute a lot to the Northern Territory, and we are, we are a giver. It would be nice to see some money um, being brought back to help us as well uh, deal with these issues that really do impact our reputation. It's it's hard to move forward when you've got something like that hanging over your shoulder and we're not in charge of it. The government is and we would like to see the government do what they need to do. And if it is going to the federal government and saying, look, this is beyond us, we need your help. We need um, maybe they need to change the way they approach it. Maybe it's not just using the legacy mine unit within the government, tapping into the mining industries that have the technology, that have the wealth of knowledge um, and the expertise and tapping into them more readily and using that to get these issues sorted. And I guess the reason we're here talking about legacy mines, Catherine, is because there's been some legislation passed this week in NT Parliament. A few other uh, mining reforms have been passed as well. I know in in August you were quoted as having a few concerns. Uh, How do you feel now? Look, I want to thank the NT government for um, making some sensible changes to their draft bill, um, ones that the members of the Minerals Council had asked for. Um, Look, I hate saying it, but the devil's going to be in the detail. Once this legislation is um, enacted and in in place... Comes into effect July next year. July next year. Um, it, time will tell how it is administered. We always said there was no problem with the legislation as it stand. It was how it was administered. It was the policies that were bolted onto it by government, by the um, people pushing those approval processes through. So what our industry wants to see before they make an investment decision, and these are huge investment decisions, is how long it's going to take and how much it is going to cost. So how this legislation is administered by this new department will okay. so be, still the got, proof will be in, the, in the pudding for that. Because we interviewed Wayne Pierce from AMEC about a month or so ago. He seemed to have no issues, said that these changes would be national leading and protect the NT's environment as it should be. But you're still just got some reservations. Look, I think there's um, quite a difference in the membership between AMEC and the Minerals Council. Uh, We do represent a lot of the operating mines and those very close to financial investment decision. These mines have had investors invest in the project that was approved under the former legislation. You can't be changing the goalposts when a project is almost about to start or halfway through. Change of the goalposts ru- ruins certainty for investment and it gives the Northern Territory a bad name and somewhere to invest. And finally, what's the next big mine in the Northern Territory? The one, next one to yeah, get Yeah, when, when's the next one to come online? We've seen uh, a lithium mine near Darwin. What's going to be the next one in your books? So a lot of the mines on that 19 project list that um, – that is talked about are not necessarily brand new mines. A lot of them are actually going back and reprocessing tailings or reopening up mines in regions now that the technology is far more advanced. So reprocessing and taking out commodities that were otherwise looked over Mm. or overlooked. So you've got RFU resources 
It's, yeah, come on. I just, I just want one. What's the next? Arafura one? Resources is is breathe, is um is a very very exciting and very big project, and it's been making some some awesome announcements. Yeah, you've had Northern Iron, um, which is a Warrego tailings project, and they've made um, a lot of announcements already about the rail line. The rail line. Mm-hmm. Um, and those sorts of things. There's exciting things happening around Tennant Creek with a few of the um, groups joining together. So that um, that is going to be processing a lot of stuff there. And look, the most exciting project that I would love any project to get off the ground in the Northern Territory would be a copper project because none of the critical minerals or rare earths mean anything unless the world has copper in order to do the connectivity for these uh, for electricity. And the world is has a shortage of it, and the Northern Territory has some. So I would love to see a copper project get across the line. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. No worries. Thank you. Catherine Tillmouth, who is from the Minerals Council of Australia. So as you heard, $88 million in the kitty to fix up legacy mines in the Northern Territory. Do you think that's enough money to fix some of these problems? Our text number here at the Country Hour is zero four eight seven double nine. 1057. 88 million bucks in the kitty. Is it enough for legacy mines in the territory? 0487 1057. According to the NT government, and as Catherine just mentioned, when it comes to more recent mining operations, companies must lodge a security, a bond with the NT government. And the department currently holds a total of 1.74 billion dollars in mining securities. That's as of the 1st of November this year, $1.74 billion. And that's across 353 separate projects in the Northern Territory. So that's what the government is sitting on in terms of those more recent projects. But yeah, $88 million in the kitty for the legacy mines. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash gives to donate today. It is 8 to 1 and you are tuned into the Country Hour. The Singapore-based Louis Dreyfus Company has made a takeover bid for Australia's largest cotton gin operator. So Louis Dreyfus already owns 17% of the ASX-listed Nemoy Cotton, but now wants full control of this company, which has nine cotton gins in the eastern states, and it's also involved in building the new cotton gin at Kununurra in the Ord Irrigation Scheme. Nemoy Cotton's executive chairman, Tim Watson, spoke to Brendan Long about the offer that's been made. Nemoy Cotton's received a uh, what's called a non-binding indicative offer from Louis Dreyfus. So what that means in simple terms is that uh, Louis Dreyfus has made an offer of a total of 51 cents to buy the uh, remaining shares that they don't already own. And they own circa 17% of of Namoy Cotton at, the, at this stage. It's subject to some due diligence. We'll call it an extraordinary general meeting of the shareholders. We expect that will happen sometime around April or May. And 
the shareholders get to vote on on the outcome. We've had in, in it indication from our major other shareholders, being Samuel Terry Asset Management, that they would support this offer. Multiply 51 cents by 208 million shares, roughly. I think that works out at 109 million or thereabouts. I'm just wondering how long uh, this has been in the pipeline for? Well, we announced the strategic review, I think it was in July, and we, you know, we announced that to the market that we were undertaking a strategic review and that all, all options were on the table. So we, as a board, recognised that the company was in good shape. So and you, our recent half-year results have demonstrated that. And that's, that's the time we felt as a board is when you, uh, if you're going to look at what the future might be like, it's best to do that when things are going well, not when you've got your back to the wall. And so we thought, well, we're get, things are going well. Now it's time to, to um, have a look at what are the best options for taking this company. You know, we've been 62 years now. What's going to what's the best to take us forward for another 62 years? Uh, I think we can safely say we haven't left any stone unturned as to what is the the best option for Namoy Cotton, for our growers, for our stakeholders, our shareholders, and for our, our team, our staff. If you look at the uh, the current share price, it's on Monday it was 35 cents. It's now closer to 51 cents. So the value is that um, the shareholders are getting uh, actual numbers are in the re- release, but it's mm-hmm. 30 to 40 percent premium above what was the last traded, um, the most recent trade. What would the acquisition mean for growers? I think for growers, it's positive. And being a grower myself, uh, in the past, in my previous life, I, I think I can relate to that. So, so what it what it does for growers, it means that. Even even more so, you've got a, a counterparty that is going to be there for the long term and financially stable. And, you know, there's been some recent history of, of other companies that are, haven't had demonstrated that financial stability. Namoy uh, has always done that. It's always been a strong counterparty. And now teaming up with someone like Louis Dreyfus, that even just... Uh, reinforces the strength of that uh, of that counterparty and uh, would give you the confidence as a grower to continue to deal with with Namoy Cotton long into the future. And in terms of gins still under construction, you know, especially in the the north, how how's all that progressing? Our goal was to get the majority of the concrete works done prior to the wet season, and and that's happened. I know the um, the construction of the building part of it, the, effectively the shed, it's been done by a firm in Brisbane and they're pretty well done and ready to start delivering it on site as soon as the wet season finishes. And so it's, yeah, it's full full steam ahead. Do you think some people might be upset that a, a foreign-owned company will, will be buying out an Australian company? There'll be lots of people who have different views on that, but I think we're we're all operating on a on a global platform these days, and uh, Louis Dreyfus, uh, you know, they've shown a, a long commitment to Australian agriculture. Whilst they're they're not an Australian born and 
company, they're, they've been operating here for 110 years. So the combined the two is a, with NAMOR, that's 172 years of commitment to Australian agriculture. And so I, I think that's a, um, they're, they're, the more I learn about Louis Dreyfus and I've been involved, you know, working with them as joint venture partners for the last um, well, since I've been on the board, which is about eight years, and they've been involved with NAMOI for nearly 10, they, they've got a strong commitment and uh, similar sort of values to, to NAMOI, and uh, I, I see only positives with joining the two. That is Tim Watson, who's the executive chairman of NAMOI Cotton. In Grain Central's coverage of this story, it says, and I'll quote verbatim here, it says unconfirmed reports say Louis Dreyfus Company will also take over operation of the Northern Territory's first cotton gin on track to start up near Catherine next year. That's an interesting unconfirmed report. I guess we'll just have to wait and see as we go to air this afternoon. Yes, shares in Nemoy Cotton, they have jumped 32% this week off the back of that takeover bid from Louis Dreyfus Company, or will be revealed early next year, it would seem. G'day, I'm Kerry Penny. I'm a Rambutan grower in the Northern Territory. I uh, have been growing them since probably 1988. We've had a few ups and downs over the years, but we think we're getting better at it. You're listening to the Country Hour. On ABC Local Radio across the Territory. <laughs> Matt Brown with you this afternoon. We were getting amongst the Rambutans on yesterday's program. The season is here for the fruit that looks like a Christmas bauble. Keep an eye out for Rambutans. And if you missed our conversation yesterday with Kerry Upini, who's not just picking Rambutans, but he's also expanding his farm, uh, that story will be available on yesterday's podcast if you want to check that out. Now, in a moment, I'll be telling you about a special ceremony that's taken place this week on Mount Doreen Station in the Tanami region. And we're heading to Cahill's Crossing in a moment because it's closed. Cahill's is closed as we go to air this afternoon. I'll tell you more in just a moment on the Country Hour. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Moses Rako is there this afternoon. And Moses, there's been a bit more rain in the last 24 hours. What are some of the best figures? Best figures we've got, Matt, for the 24 hours to 9am this morning is Baboom Crossing in the Daly River area and Daly District, 72 millimetres there, um, just under 50 millimetres uh, in the Arnhem Snowdrop, Snowdrop Creek, West Waterhouse, uh, 47 uh, in the top end there. So elsewhere, um, Carpenteria, just under 30 millimetres at uh, Borolula and Looks like we've got, that is a two-day total at Wataka at 23 millimetres, but for a 24-hour total at Alice Springs in the southern districts that uh, got the, the first, first uh, yeah, came first there with 19 millimetres to 9am this morning. Yeah. There are some, yeah, it's pretty good. Sorry, Matt, I cut you off. No, no, I was only just nodding in approval. 19 millimetres in the centre is, is lovely at this time of year. And I see West Baines River and the VRD, 43 millimetres in the gauge and look at the radars this afternoon there's there's storms popping up everywhere what can you tell us okay so starting in the north we're seeing them the thunderstorms kind of develop along the north coast with that sea breeze pushing in also in the Carpentaria coast as well with um, kind of sea breezes coming in there as well 
Um, in the Daly district, we're quite fortunate. There's probably two areas where we're seeing thunderstorms and uh, as it turns out, they happen to be lined up right across the Cox Peninsula and um, it's just starting to see some development uh, over the rural area as well. So that's quite fortunate. Um, so yeah, wasn't expecting um, them to be so close today, but they turn out that they are. Um, uh, we've also got uh, the Tiwis firing hectares mm-hmm. there going off um, and the Coburg Peninsula was the first to fire in the top end in the later part of this morning and that's still going Ooh. and yeah, further at, south along yep. the um, the SA border bit of action yes. there this afternoon yeah they're the ones we're keeping a very close eye on today Matt um, we've got an area there where we could see potentially severe thunderstorms um, uh, I guess we're keeping close eyes on those ones if they do start becoming or looking like severe on the radar. Um, but just keep an eye on that. If we do go with any severe thunderstorm warnings, um, keep on top of that with the uh, with the website there. Uh, most likely risk will be damaging wind gusts. Um, and those damaging wind gusts could extend up into parts of the Tanami and Barclay district um, during the afternoon period. But particularly down near the South Australian border, even parts of the Simpson district, um, we could even see some areas where you might even see some large hail potentially there. Um, so, yeah, keep a close eye on the website if uh, should we go out with any warnings this afternoon. Okay, and anything else we should be aware of before you go? Uh, look, in the short term, it really is uh, these severe thunderstorms. Yeah. Um, the risks of those severe thunderstorms backs off tomorrow. The feature that's moving through the central Australia is the, the mid to upper level trough. That's what's really helping the situation at the moment. That moves further east and the focus will be over in Queensland for those severe storms. But in terms of thunderstorm activity, they will continue tomorrow. But we might see some clearance from the southwestern parts um, of the Territory. Um, but, yeah, look, looking ahead into the weekend, we could see some heavy rainfall as well over parts of the Barclay and, and Carpentary district. So still not, still can't rule um, severe thunderstorms out <clears throat> uh, at the moment. But, it, look, tomorrow might just be some a slight easing before okay. returning on Saturday. It's the 1st of December tomorrow, Moses. Yes, it is. Uh, we're going to be joined by one of your long-range weather forecasting gurus tomorrow. We just want to know when the next monsoonal burst, the first monsoonal burst for the season, is due yes. to arrive. So that's the I big question we pose tomorrow. Mm. We'd all love for that to happen <laughs> as soon as possible, wouldn't we? But in the meantime, there is a bit of action around. Um, Moses, if you were planning on driving out to Gumbalanya this afternoon, don't. Cancel your plans. Cahill's is cr- uh, crossing is closed. Oh, okay. Tell the colleagues. Th- <laughs> thanks for letting us know, Matt. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye. Enjoy a feast of movies for free on ABC iView. From Colin Firth and Geoffrey Rush in The King's Speech. At last, sir, here's your speech. You are on air at six. To Dame Judi Dench in Red Joan. I am not a spy. Plus Carol, Boy, Empire Records, Burlesque and so many more. A feast of delicious movies all summer long. Bon appétit. Streaming free and ad-free on ABC iView. The wet season is starting to deliver and there are now flows making their way into the East Alligator River, which we can tell you has closed the famous Cahills Crossing into Arnhem Land. It is closed as we go 
to air. Uh, Andy Ralph, he's lived in Kakadu for about 30 years. He's got an eye on things out that way and says it's just beautiful to see. Well, I've been waiting for a while. It's pretty late. Uh, looking back on my Facebook memories the last three years, the East Alligator River's been flooding uh, in uh, early October. So a month later, down she comes. So we, uh, my daughter's actually uh, harpooning crocodiles at midnight the other night, and she said, I, I can see fresh water coming down here. Uh, so that's how it works. I lived at the ranch station for years back in the 90s, and, you know, it'll be dry as a bone. It'll be blowing dust on the causeway at Carl's Crossing uh, one day, and she's up to a, you wake up the next morning, she's a metre. So, and here it is. So fresh water coming down. It's no no surprise. There's been plenty of good rain up in the rock country in the Arnhem Land of Scarbon. So it is a bit later than normal, but uh, as I say, I've been here over 30 years, mate, every wet season is different. Some have an early start, a late start, a big middle, a uh, a big ending, it's, it's just how it works. So hopefully it's up now, we'll stay up until probably February, March. Yeah, the photos that I've seen, the Cahill's Crossing, it's a, almost 1.2 metres this morning. It'll stay up there for, for a while now? If it had been a metre, say, in early October, you'd say, well, it may be up and down a bit. It might drop back to 0.3. So it's likely that NT government, NT Roads, Dipple, will lock the gate. There's a gate they lock. Uh, to stop cars getting washed off because, gee, uh, you know, back in the 90s, before they locked the gate, we'd see up to 20 or 30 cars a year being washed off the causeway. People, people um, overestimate their abilities and that of their vehicles to navigate the causeway and they underestimate the, the power of the water. So it's not just the height, you know, a metre. You can go through a metre if there's no flow. It's the height plus velocity, which brings many people unstuck. And there's been hundreds of cars washed off, unbelievably, with no fatalities. There's been crocodile fatal attacks there, several of those at Cars Crossing and East Alligator River, uh, sadly. But never, amazingly enough, people have swum out of their vehicles at midnight and dodged crocodiles and got away with it. But um, one day the number will come up. But uh, thankfully now, Common Sense prevails and the park rangers on instructions from Dipple, NT government, they usually lock the gate when it goes over 0.6 of a metre. Yeah, and this is something that happens every year in Kakadu. Uh, tell us about the uh, the shuffling of cars that happens with people in Goombalanya and, and West Arnhem region every now. Year. So I know, especially Goombalanya, not so much Manangrita, because they, they can, they, uh, it's a bit, you know, Manangrita is another 300 kilometres away from the from the river, and they usually fly out or barge their vehicles out of uh, Manangrita port. But, uh, yeah, certainly I know all the Goombalanya school teachers bought their vehicles over to uh, the Kakadu side of the river and put them at the airport uh, on the weekend because they had a sniff that uh, the river was going to come up any minute. Uh, and usually, um, NT government to make sure that all the diesel's been bought in uh, to run the generator. they got a hybrid uh, solar uh, gen- uh, power generator for the town's electricity. Uh, they make sure all the big supplies are bought in for the Archimalal supermarket. Of course, the Ampali Club <laughs> could have the beer, the wet season supply of beer. So all that stuff. Hopefully, he's been bought in the last few weeks, and that'll keep him going. As I say, till uh, usually it's uh, late uh, February, early March, sometimes even April before you can get through again. So it's a good uh, can be three or four months of the East Alligator River uh, being closed, access to Arnhem Land, at least through uh, through the Kakadu Way. Uh, obviously, the Bowman Track is still open, and that won't close usually until major flooding in uh, closer into December, January. Now, Cahill's Crossing, it's usually one of the easiest places to spot a crocodile in the top end. 
when the river gets flowing like this, uh, what happens to all the crocs and the good fishing there? Well, unfortunately, sadly for tourists, uh, the crocs all go. I mean, uh, having a flooding of river is, you know, obviously a fantastic event. It's been dry as a bone for six months. Haven't seen a cloud in the sky in Kakadu, no rain. So uh, we need big wet seasons for the barramundi to get on the move, the crocs to do their thing. So the crocs do take off. Once those creeks start flowing and billabongs start getting water in them, then they'll leave the main channel. A lot of them leave the main channel. And, uh, you know, a week ago, you would have seen uh, 30 or 40 crocodiles at high tide at Carl's Crossing. Parks Australia put a couple of fantastic crocodile viewing areas there now last year. Fantastic. And hundreds of people. Heaps of buses go there just to watch crocodiles at high tide feeding on mullet and barramundi. But uh, sadly, that will, that will finish now because the, the crocs know what's going on. They're going to bolt. Also, for the fishermen, it, now it's over a metre. It's like fishing uh, for a needle in a haystack. So it puts off the barra at least in uh, this, this time of the year. But uh, they know, the fishermen will know, for a decent runoff season in March, April, on the South Alligator, the East Alligator River, you've got to have a great wet season. And that's what we're hoping for right now. Well, whether it's going to come, uh, it's up to the Bureau. But uh, they say it's going to be uh, an average or less than average wet. But, you know, we'll take it as it comes. Yeah, fingers crossed for a good one. Uh, just lastly, Andy, uh, I've actually interrupted you while you're doing a, a special job this morning that involves earthquakes. Uh, can you tell me what you're up to? Indeed. Well, a lot of people don't know. Uh, Geoscience Australia have uh, a couple of uh, geomagnetic sensing uh, observation stations in the Northern Territory. There's one in Alice Springs uh, and there's one at the South Alligator River Ranger Station. There's only half a dozen in Australia and so uh, geoscience have all the uh, magnetic sensing uh, equipment here at the ranger station, all the seismic. So any earthquakes in our hemisphere we pick up, uh, the earth is moving all the time. 99% of uh, tremors and movement humans don't feel. Um, but uh, we certainly pick it up on our instruments. There are a couple um, uh, static ones. Uh, there's actually one uh, in Parliament House in, uh, in Darwin, which also has a movement sensor. All that gets back to uh, back to Canberra geoscience, uh, but uh, my job as a as a observer is to do manual observations through the field of light, measuring um, you know the the uh, through, through the all points of the compass, the the uh, the movements, and send it down to Canberra once a week, mate. So that's my little job uh, every week. South Alligator River Ranger Station, down here for a couple of hours, loving it. That's Andy Ralph from Kakadu, keeping an eye on things for us. He was speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. In a moment on the Country Hour, I'm going to tell you about a special ceremony that's taken place this week on Mount Doreen Station. But first, let's have a song, and this comes from the most popular album in Australia this year, according to Spotify. Uh, Dan Fitzgerald, you're our local DJ. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so Matt, at the end of each year, streaming company Spotify gathers all the stats, it collates all the data of what people have been around the world and around to. Australia have been listening to throughout the year. Uh, for Australia, the most streamed artist was Taylor Swift. No surprises there. Um, but there were some country artists in the mix, though. Morgan Wallen's One Thing at a Time. It was the most streamed album in Australia, and that is a country album, Morgan wow. Wallen. So I feel a little embarrassed that we haven't played too much Morgan this year. We should get. We changed that today, uh, Dan. What's the song we got here? Oh, we've got a song off of that album. It's called "Everything I Love." Beautiful.
Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. After decades spent at a museum in Adelaide, the remains of a Walpri ancestor have been returned to country this week. Community laid the ancestor's body to rest at Vaughan Springs, over 400 kilometres to the northwest of Alice Springs on Mount Doreen Station. Walpri man Carl Hampton explains how this all came about. So two years ago, um, we were made aware during a, a repatriation trip to Adelaide and the Adelaide University that there was uh, a Walpri ancestor remains held at the Adelaide University and and that began the work of, of research and, and I'd try and identify who that ancestor was. Um, there'd been uh, a lot of research being done um, and obviously conversations with people who, who may have known about that story and we were very lucky to uh, to come across um, someone who, who was able to share that story with us um, and it was a really important part of the jigsaw to, 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 to pull this full picture together. What we do know through that research um, is that the ancestor came from a place called Pigalie or known as Vaughan Springs which is about 450 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs on the Mount Doreen pass release um, and it was during construction of the homestead at Vaughan Springs by the pastoralists at the time where that ancestor's remains um, were discovered and then um, they were you know, removed from, the, from, the, from that location and, and, and brought in from the missionaries at the time, the Fleming family, to Yundamu at the mission house and then further then on to Murray Barrett who's doing a dental study with the Adelaide University and, and taken back down to the Adelaide University. So we know it was between 1960 and 1965 um, when that ancestor was removed and, and then transported down to Adelaide at the university. Was the burial site damaged in the process? How did they discover this ancestor? Yeah, look, as far as we know with the research and the stories we've been told, it was a, a tree burial. The tree had been knocked and, and the uh, ancestors' remains had fallen to the ground and, and placed in a box. Um, that's the, the research that's told us and the, and, the, and the recordings and the histories that we've been able to be, uh, gain that information from. So it was during construction of the Vaughan Springs homestead around that period of time um, when how the ancestor was discovered. Um, you know, importantly, that family collected the remains and, and put them put the remains in a box and, and, and took it away, which, you know, it's really important because um, otherwise those remains may have never been known about. We, we know this is important for Yapa and for Yindamu. Let's, it, well, it was a sad occasion, but also a celebration of Walpri culture and Yindamu unity, really. You know, I think someone said during the speeches that we are all, we are all one. You know, we've got different skin groups, different family groups, but... At the end of the day, Yindam is one community. And uh, as I said earlier at the start of the interview, that it's, it's about nation building and, and using repatriation as the vehicle or the tool to make that happen. That's Walbury man Carl Hampton speaking to Charmaine Allison. So this all unfolded on Mount Doreen Station this week. The managers there are Leanna and Sam Bryant. A lot of this was organised by the previous owners of the station, but Leanna says it's been an interesting week and they've been really busy getting that site ready for this special repatriation. 
Um, so we cleared a bit of a track around so they could get cars to the site safely because um, there wasn't like a road in there or anything. So um, we had the grader in there to clear a bit of a bit of a track for them to get in. They also needed some space for a dance area, so we cleared a bit of space for that. Um, and then also provided a bit of firewood um, and some water from our um, here from our um, spring where we pump our own water. Um, we provided them a bit of water as well, some firewood and then some sand um, to use um, for the evening ceremony they were doing. Um, and you did and say that it was more sort of organised um, before you guys arrived. But what was it like knowing that something like that was happening at Mount Doreen for you? Um, yeah, it was, it was inter- definitely interesting. Um, Sam sort of was the one that spoke to Carl a bit more about it. So, um, but it was de- yeah, it's quite interesting to hear the the background and the history of it. Of course, um, it's our our home now, but it was obviously this gentleman's home many many moons ago. So it was um, nice that he was able to be returned to country and um, yeah, that they could hold the ceremony here and um because it seems like it's been a long time coming by the sound of things so um yeah the uh, community members that came out um were sort of just stayed the night overnight and um yeah from the feedback i've had a few of them um ring since and said that they appreciated being able to come out and and spend the evening and um yeah so that was good yeah that is nice yeah and have you do you guys get much of that rain over the last week Yes, we've been pretty lucky. We um, got some rain today, and uh, we yeah get hopefully get a little bit more this afternoon. Um, but it looks like it's going to heat up again, so it'll be a nice little break for the for the crew to have some cool days before it heats up again. Yeah, are you expecting the rain that did fall this morning to make a big impact with regrowing after fires earlier this year? Yeah, we've sort of been a bit lucky in terms of the rain we've already had. We've already had a couple of inches that has, um, and, and some of that has fallen on our burnt country, so we can already see some of that starting to come back. We're very, very lucky because um, not everywhere has been, has been that lucky, so we're definitely counting our blessings there. That is Leanna Bryant, who is the manager at Mount Doreen Station in the Ten Mile region, speaking there to Victoria Ellis. If you've missed any of those stories on the Country Hour today, you'll be able to catch it via our podcast. You find it wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Uh, That's it for today's program. I will see you tomorrow on the 1st of December. Keep it rural.